Welcome to our third and final uh, workshop session entitled Christ Our Righteousness, a fresh look at the law, the covenants, and the gospel. And we have indeed already looked at the Ten Commandments in our first session. In our second session, we looked at the covenants, which uh, I really enjoyed that study. And uh, this evening or this afternoon, we're going to look at the gospel. Now, uh, I can say right up front that um, it's impossible, you know, to go into everything regarding the gospel in one hour. But um, what we are going to attempt to do is to get kind of the big picture, uh, the larger picture, an overview uh, of the gospel through the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is a New Testament book uh, written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, specifically the first eight chapters of the book of Romans uh, are going to be uh, some of what we'll be looking at. Um, and again, we're not going to be able to look at all the all, everything in there, but we're just gonna, I'm just going to kind of pick out some gems uh, that portray the gospel um, in the first half of the book of Romans. Um, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into it. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we're grateful to be here at the uh, ASI convention. We are thankful that we can be gathered together like this, that we have the opportunity to study your word. Uh, and we do pray that now you will inspire us through the Holy Spirit to understand the deep things that you have written to us. We ask you, Lord, that you will remove all distraction from us and that your Holy Spirit may move upon our hearts, help us to see Jesus more clearly. And may he become everything for us. Amen. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 All right. Um, yes, the book of Romans. A little bit of, let's, let's get a little bit of facts together here. That what, what do we know about the book of Romans? Um, it was written by the Apostle Paul. That's pretty clear. Uh, even Bible scholars don't really question that. He introduces himself in the first chapter. Uh, it was written in the first century. And uh, it was written to the first believers, or the Christian church, in which city? Rome. Rome. Now, isn't it interesting, just think about this for a moment, that of all the letters that Paul wrote, uh, and write, a lot of the New Testament is really the letters of Paul, a you know, letter to the Ephesus, the city of Ephesians is, a, is the letter to the believers in Ephesus. You know, you have the letter, Galatians is a letter to the believers in Galatia, which is a province. And so you have all these letters written to different parts of the Roman Empire where you had these uh, Christians, um, these believers. And Rome was one of them. Now think about that. Paul writes to the believers in Rome, which was the capital of the empire. And he writes, um, and in his letter, he, in a beautiful way, portrays the gospel. Um, later, Rome became the center of the perversion of the gospel, right? In, in later centuries, when you look at the time of the Reformation, or time before the Reformation and leading up to the Reformation and into the Reformation, you have um, the papal power in control in Rome, and uh, in many ways, um, tradition had taken the place of the pure uh, gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, Sorry. welcome. Yeah, come in. Sorry. That's okay. And so in order for us to recapture the beauty of the gospel, we can find it in many books of the Bible, um, but particularly uh, the book of Romans is a beautiful 
uh, explanation and exhibit of Paul uh, through, through the gospel. And he addresses this to a place that we would maybe not connect so much with the pure gospel today. Uh, when, I, when, I, when, when I say Rome, you don't immediately think of you know, the pure gospel. You might think of much else um, that has happened, and, and it surely has, a lot has happened. Um, but here we are, back in the, for a moment, we're, we're back in the first century when this was written uh, to the believers there. And um, the book of Romans has 16 chapters. And you can basically divide the book into really two portions. Um, the first eight chapters, so half of the book of Romans, is this picture that Paul gives us of the gospel message. And then from chapter 9 to 16 is really the practical application of the gospel, um, you know, amongst the believers. Um, I really wish I had time to, to, to go uh, through a lot of this material, but of course we're limited here, so we're just going to pick out a couple of things, and hopefully this will kind of create an interest for you to go back and to study this, this book, the book of Romans. If I could right away just give you a, a study tool... Um, what has shaped my understanding uh, of the Gospel and of the Book of Romans has been a book written by A.T. Jones and E.J. Wegener. Have anyone heard of those two individuals? They were um, Seventh-day Adventist pioneers of our church, um, lived at the time of Ellen White, and uh, they were both um, preachers, writers, um, and they wrote a book, um, and this book is called the gospel in the book of Romans, quite simple. And uh, it goes verse by verse, basically through the book of Romans, and um, it's been very helpful for me. It's been very very eye-opening, very beautiful. Um, and so that's just something that I could recommend um, as a study tool when you're looking at uh, this book. Um, and this fits right into our theme, Christ Our Righteousness. Um, there was a, um, a general conference meeting in the year 1888. Um, and at that general conference meeting, A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagoner uh, presented the subject of righteousness by faith, or Christ our righteousness. Um, at that time, the, the, the Adventist church was really at a kind of a crossroads, you could say. Uh, a crossroads between, because what had happened is they were very strong doctrinally, but they had lost sight of Jesus in the doctrines. Now, the doctrines are beautiful. The doctrines are important. Uh, everything that we believe as Adventists, whether it comes to you know, what happens when a person dies or, or how Jesus will come back or the time we will spend with him, you know, the millennial prophecy or the truth about hell or the truth about... All these doctrines are, are very important. But if you take Christ out of that, what you, what you get left with is really just basically an, a theoretical argument based on Scripture. And, and that had happened to a large degree within the Adventist movement. And uh, A.T. Jones and E.G. Wegener, in 1888, they got up and they had this theme of Christ our righteousness. We must come back to what it's really about. The scriptures revolve around the person Jesus. And the doctrines are really only a lens through which we see Jesus. And in their attempt to bring Christ back into the focus, um, and they preach largely, by the way, from the book of Romans, uh, in their attempt to do that, um, there were different uh, reactions to that. Uh, some, they responded uh, positively, uh, including Alan White, 
prophet of the Lord wrote that, she actually wrote regarding E.J. Wagoner and A.T. Jones, that they were like Caleb and Joshua, the comparison she makes. Well, if you know the story of uh, Caleb and Joshua, those were the ones that said, hey, we can go in, we can possess the land, right? When the other spies, remember, they said, no, no, this is too hard. There are giants in the land. We can't conquer them. And so that comparison really shows that this was, a, this was a very special message that was given to our church. There were those that received it. There was those that rejected it. And up till this day, within our denomination, uh, there are people that receive it and people that reject it. Uh, and I believe it's a very important message, Christ our righteousness, to bring Christ back into the picture where he belongs and to rightly understand what the gospel is. Because there is a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to what the gospel is. Um, the gospel is, is, is sometimes portrayed as merely a covering up uh, of, of sin. You know, you just continue to sin, you'll be fine. Uh, Jesus will make it right when he comes back the second time. We can't live without sin. We, we're always going to do it. Um, you know, just, just trust in Jesus. That's all you have to do. And when he comes back, he'll fix everything. This, you know, that's a, that's a, a version of the gospel that you will hear. Then you have other versions of the gospel like, no, we must do everything. You know, we must, we must live perfect and we must do this. And there's this attempt in our own strength to live perfect lives. And, and there's failure in that and there's frustration in that and there's depression in that. And, and so there's, you know, you, you have different spectrums of what the gospel is. And I believe Christ our righteousness, this message and the gospel portrayed in the book of Romans, uh, shows us the way that Jesus has showed us, uh, the way that the apostles preached the gospel. Uh, and that is, yes, that victory is possible, uh, but not alone. And the doctrines are important, but not without Jesus. Bringing Christ into everything. Being, Christ is our righteousness. There's nothing righteous about us. There's no way that we can perform obedience to the law of God. But by cooperating, by allowing Jesus into our lives, he empowers us to live obedient lives. And that's what we're going to look a little bit at um, this afternoon. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans. And we'll go right to chapter 8. And we're going to go a little bit forth and back here. But uh, we'll start off in chapter 8. Romans and the 8th chapter. Beginning in verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, there are two ways to walk, so to speak. And of course, this is spiritually speaking here. We can either walk according to the flesh, or we can walk according to the Spirit. And this connects a little bit with what we spoke about yesterday when we talked about the two covenants. Remember, the two covenants were, um, Paul used the symbolic analogy in Galatians chapter 4 that, uh, of, um, of um, the two sons of Abraham, right? The, son, the first son, Ishmael, and the second son, Isaac. And how Ishmael was basically born uh, because Abraham thought and Sarah thought that they should help God, that they should, you know, do this because God could certainly not do that for them because they were so old they couldn't have children. You remember the story. And so they went about performing their own righteousness, right? Their own right doing before the Lord, which was not acceptable and it was not, it was not sustainable. It was not. And, um, and then God came in and he fulfilled his promise 
and Sarah and Abram had a child, and that was Isaac, and that was a symbol of the new covenant, or the covenant that God wants to enter with us. And again, here you have this comparison in Romans 8, you either walk according to the flesh, or you walk according to the spirit. Walking according to the flesh is your own performance, your own righteousness, right? Um, seeing the standard and wanting to live up to that, but you know, in our own strength, we will, we will quickly find out that, that, that that's an impossibility. Um, and it will either lead to frustration or it will lead to self-righteousness. Um, but then walking according to the Spirit is walking in the power of Jesus. And, we, and remember the illustration that I gave yesterday, or the story basically that I, that I gave yesterday about Peter that was in the boat with his disciples. And Jesus is walking on the water, which is an impossible thing to do as a human being. Uh, what does Peter do? He steps out of the boat on the command of Jesus and he starts walking on water. Impossible. It's just... It's just not possible that the, the laws of nature do not allow that. Uh, as Just as much as the laws of spiritual nature now do not allow us to live in victory. I mean, it's impossible for you and me to live according to the Ten Commandments. It's just as impossible for you and me to keep the Ten Commandments as it is for us to walk on water. Just as impossible. Um, but by looking unto Jesus and receiving strength from Him... And by acting upon his command and acting upon his promise, we can actually do the impossible. Uh, remember I said yesterday, Peter had a sinking nature. We have a sinful nature. Uh, and, and the sinful nature that we have tends towards sin. And yet, when that nature is surrendered, there is a, another nature that starts taking over. And this is Christ himself that comes into our life. Now, there is a word here in Romans 8, verse 1, and that's the word condemnation. And it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, then what about the fact, what, what is there if we're not in Christ Jesus then? Well, there is condemnation then, right? This is so important for us to understand because... Many times the gospel is presented as kind of like, it's kind of like the cherry on the cake. You know, the cake is there, but it just needs a kind of finishing touch. Let's put the cherry on top of it, you know. Or you have kind of a very good life, but you know, your very good life could become a little bit better if you had Jesus in your experience. And uh, this kind of approach, like the gospel just makes something that is already fine, already good, just a little bit better... If we present it that way, we're actually missing the power of the gospel. We're missing the whole point of the gospel. Uh, and yet this is many times how it is presented. We, you know, you, you try to reach out to people. Yeah, you're, you know, you have a good life, but your life can even be better if you had Jesus in your life. That's not really the, 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 the case, because without Christ, our lives are miserable. They're not good. Jesus is not the cherry on the cake. Jesus is everything. I mean... There is, without Jesus, there is condemnation. That's all there is, condemnation. But in Christ, that condemnation is removed. Now, um, let me give you another illustration here. If, let's say, you were, uh, you were going to the beach one day, and you're enjoying yourself, and, 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 and you're standing you know, by the seaside there, and you walk a little bit into the water, and you're just enjoying yourself, and the, and the waves are just splashing you know, up to your knees, and, and you're perfectly okay, and you're just looking out over the ocean, and suddenly, there's a big guy, he runs up to you, grabs you, pulls you onto the beach, and says, I saved you. <laughs> what would you think about that person? <laughs> 
like, I didn't need that, right? I was doing perfectly okay. I mean, as a matter of fact, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel threatened. I didn't feel in danger. I wasn't in danger. Um, this was totally unnecessary. You did not save me. And, and you're not going to be thankful to that person the rest of your life, right? Because you, didn't, you, you were not needed. You didn't need that, so, that, that saving. Now, second scenario, you go actually swimming into that ocean. And soon enough, you, you, know, you, you realize that you're being pulled out. The tide is pulling you away from the beach. And, and you're turning around and you're swimming with all your strength. But you're not getting closer to the beach. You're just getting further away from the beach. And, 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 and the waves are, 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 are splashing over your head. And you're starting to swallow water. And you just realize you're just struggling to stay above the water, right? And you're struggling and struggling, getting more and more tired. And then in the distance, you see, you know, this this little boat, and it's getting closer and closer and closer and closer, and you're just like struggling to survive before that boat can come, and then, yep, there it is, it's getting closer and closer, and there's a, a guy on the boat, and he, you know, stretches out his arm, and he pulls you onto that boat, and he says, yeah, I saved you. Are you going to be thankful? You're going to be thankful for the rest of your life. Why? Because you realize that without that boat, that person, you would have drowned. You would have died. Now, why is it so important that we understand our situation without Christ? It is, under, it is important because otherwise we will never appreciate the gift of Jesus. And that's why it's, the gospel is not, oh, you have a great life, but it can become a little bit better. <coughs> the gospel is not, oh, you have a beautiful cake, but we'll just put a cherry on top. The gospel is you're drowning. You are, you are going, without Jesus, you're going to die eternally. You're going to be, you, there's going to be no future. No future. There's, there's condemnation because the wages of sin is death. We are miserable. We are separated from God. This is the condition that we're in without Jesus. And when we understand that, it is then and only then that, that, that the gospel becomes something that we start to appreciate. It becomes beautiful because the gospel is only as good as we understand how bad we are without that good, right? And um, that's why the book of Romans, um, when, 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 when Paul starts writing the book of Romans, and uh, do you know that the first three chapters, basically Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and you can go back you know, and read that um, in your own time. But those three chapters are portraying the condition of humanity without Jesus. So Paul basically starts there. Um, you know, basically he gives his introduction, and then he says, well, those very famous uh, uh, verses that, that probably are the verses that we know most in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 and uh, verse 16. You can turn there. Those are very well-known ones, verse 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he makes kind of his statement here. Okay, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. It's the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And then after that, the rest of the chapter, basically verse 16 all the way down to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 32, is a portrayal of humanity. And my friends, it's a graphic one. I don't know if you know, if, if you kind of recall Romans chapter 1, 
It's a graphic description of the debased, morally empty, um, devastating wretchedness of mankind. That's what it is. Like, like it's, it's just a horrible pit that we're in without Jesus. And that, that's what Paul starts with. Like, is that the good news? <laughs> well, the good news comes because if that's the condition we're on with, without Christ, then when Christ comes and picks us out of that, that is an amazing message. That is good news. The gospel means good news, right? Now, Romans chapter 1 describes um, the condition of humanity at large. Um, so when Paul is writing in Romans chapter 1 about um, the human race, human beings, and their, their basically the, the, how far they have fallen in sin and the result of that, he's really portraying it from an angle... Uh, not necessarily talking about um, um, one specific group of people. He's just saying it in general. This, this, this is what it's like. Um, and he also shows in Romans chapter 1 basically what led up to this. Uh, maybe we can shortly uh, look at that. Look at Romans chapter 1 uh, because this is, this is quite interesting. Um, look at verse... Um, we'll start in verse 22. Romans chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Um, maybe a little bit of an intricate language here, but what Paul is really saying is <laughs> they're changing their understanding, you know, of, of God. They're, they, they are actually, um, we talked, I, I think I mentioned this either yesterday or the day before, I can't remember, but I did mention, I remember I, I mentioned this illustration. And that is how um, um, today, instead of God forming us in his image, we're kind of forming God in our image. It's like the potter clay analogy. You know, God is the potter, we're the clay. You know, humanity has turned it upside down and humanity has become the potter and God has become the clay. So the image of God is being changed, like what we understand about God is being changed, and this leads um, then throughout the rest of the description in Romans chapter 1 to this debased morality. Because, you know, when we change the image of God, whether we say, okay, he's just not there, or whether we change it as to um, his act that we... That we um, um, attribute to him different attributes than our reality, then we have also changed that image, right? And um, when you look, for example, just over a couple of last hundred years, uh, 200 years, um, it's interesting to note that there's, a, that there's like a, a domino effect in that. Um, in the mid-1800s, um, there was a view of God that arose, which is also called um, deism. Now, deism is the understanding that um, God perhaps, you know, started creation somehow, but he's no longer involved in it. Um, you know, God is somewhere far away there in the corner of the universe. Here are we. Um, we cannot have direct contact with him, with God. Now, this view of deism, it didn't take long. And this was quite prevalent, you know, prior and around the time of, of, of um, Darwin. Um, and so what you get is dar um, um, deism really is a sense and it is a worldview that gave birth to another worldview, and that is evolution. Because if God is somewhere far away, not really interested, 
and maybe God started, but is no longer really a personal God, then why don't we just find another explanation to the actual origin of life, right? So out of a, out of a deistic um, um, society came evolution, right? And evolution, different understanding to the origin of life, evolution eventually, of course, gave birth to um, atheism because, yeah, if we have an, an explanation to to the beginning of life and how we're here, then actually we don't need God at all. First he was not really needed, but now he's fully removed, right? And atheism, again, gives birth to humanism because if everything has evolved, then definitely human beings are evolved, you know, they're kind of on the top of the, the ladder, so to speak, and so everything starts revolving around us, right? And all of this is leading us further away from the gospel. It's leading us into a state of depravity. And this is really the, the world that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. It was already prevalent in his day, but it's only become stronger, really, uh, in our day uh, as we look around us. Now, Romans chapter 2, and I'm kind of giving you more of the bigger picture here. Romans chapter 2, uh, Paul makes a very interesting twist here, a very interesting turn in his arguments. In Romans chapter 1, he talks about the depravity of the human beings and how they've come further and further away from God. You know, they've given themselves up to sexually, you know, debasing things. And he goes on to list some of those things. But then in chapter 2, he says something interesting. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, and as you continue in Romans chapter 2, you see, you see that, that the people that he's speaking to here, he is speaking to the Jewish nation. Because the Jews, they praised themselves and they said, well, you know what, yeah, yeah, the Gentiles, they're really, really bad. And look at the way they're living and look at the, what they're doing. And, but, you know, we have the oracles of truth, so we are okay. And Paul says, wait a minute, you, the one that thinks you're judging, um, you yourself, you're, you're inexcusable before God. Uh, if you go towards the uh, end of Romans chapter 2, look at how he puts it here in, um, in verse 28. Uh, verse 28 and 29, the two last verses of Romans 2. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the latter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And um, we don't have time to read um, a lot here in, here in these chapters, but you will, if, when you read through Romans chapter 2, the picture that you get is that Paul is, is pointing out the depravity of the Jews and that they were just as guilty as the Gentiles, though they thought that they were so much better. In other words, Paul in these first chapters of the book of Romans, is showing that we all need a savior. We all need to be set free from sin. Not just those that are living their life as if there's no God altogether, described in chapter one, but also those that are self-righteous, believe that there's a God, but are only involved in outward acts, but have not had an inward conversion. In other words, if we take Romans chapter two, Though Paul wrote it regarding the Jews in the first century, we could take that chapter and we could apply it right to the Christian church today. 
You know, because as Christians, we might say, well, we're not doing like that, and we're not living like that. After all, I pay my tithe. After all, I go to church on the right day. After all, I do. But maybe there's not a change from within. And if there's not a change from within, then Paul is saying, well, you might praise yourself that you're a Jew. You might praise yourself that you're a Seventh-day Adventist. But we're all inexcusable before God. We all need the saving power of the gospel. So what the first chapters of Romans really does is it brings us all to the point, no exceptions here, of our need for Christ. And how do we understand our need? By first understanding how far we are away from him and how much we need that saving power that he brings. Um, chapter 3 really sums it up because in chapter 3, um, Paul talks here about how everyone has really come short and everyone needs the gospel. Probably one of the famous verses here in the book of Romans, or many of you will, will have heard this before, or you can even finish it when I start the verse. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and... Anyone know the rest of that verse? For all have sinned and... Yes, exactly. And come short or they fall short of the glory of God. Right? All, not just some, not just most, but all, it says, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's chapter 3, verse 23. So Paul is really making his point here quite strong. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what is the result of sin? It's death. Uh, Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, another famous verse in the book of Romans, it says, um, the wages of sin is death. But then the second part of the verse says, but, can you finish that one? Chapter 6 verse 23, but the gift of God is eternal life, right, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, we have three chapters making the case of our depravity, making the case of our need, right? Then we move into chapter 4, and in chapter 4, we, we are brought to the solution. Um, and then that solution is further developed in chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. Uh, now, we're really doing kind of the, the bird's perspective here. Uh, and this is only to kind of stimulate you uh, to personally go back and study this. You know, there's a different experience if you walk through a forest or you fly over a forest, right? If you fly over a forest, you kind of see the land. You see, you see, you know, where the forest starts, where it ends. You can, you, you see very different. If you walk through the forest, you you see very many different details. So we're kind of doing the the flying over uh, version here uh, this afternoon of the Book of Romans. But first three chapters: depravity of man. Chapter four: the solution of the gospel. Now look at what is then the solution, or how does this, how does this play out? Look at chapter 4, uh, and we'll, we'll basically just start in verse 1, and uh, I'll read the first five verses. Uh, Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say, that Abram, our father, was found according to the flesh? So here he gives an example of a person in the Old Testament that we know of, Abraham. For if Abram was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, here we're getting into 
the righteousness by faith message. Um, now, it is very important to understand that, that, that Paul is building a case here. Um, chapter 4, the first step, once we have understood that we're sinners, once we understood that we're separated from God, is to do what? Is to believe that Christ has taken our sins upon himself, that we can be accounted righteous because Christ is our righteousness. He came to this earth to live a perfect life, right? That we cannot live in our own strength. And he died a perfect death that we cannot die. Uh, And so he took our place and he imparts to us his righteousness. And so we could, you know, theologians will refer to this as the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's, It's imputed, it's given, it's imparted, imparted righteousness. Now, and this happens according to this text through faith, not by works, it says. Uh, it's not that you can earn your salvation, like, okay, um, uh, it's, it's, it's not like this deal where, where, where God says, okay, I'll give you this if you do this for me. And so, and so you, you know, and that's what, where many go wrong. <laughs> like, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and I'll do that, and then I will get this gift of salvation. Many religions in our world are built that way. Uh, you think about it. You look at the Islamic faith, you have the five pillars of Islam. You do these five things, right? You look at Catholicism, false Christianity, really, because it's a list of things you need to do. You know, you need to pray this prayer, and you need to do this penance, and you need to do, confess you know, to, to the priest, and you need to, if you do this and this and this, if you pray to this saint, for that, you will get this solution. You know, within a lot of religions today, it's about you do this, you do this, you do this, and then you'll get the price. Christianity stands out as unique. I mean, true Christianity I'm talking about here. The true gospel stands out as something completely unique because it's not about you doing this and this and this and this and getting a reward. No, it's about you having faith in Jesus that can only do it for you because you realize you cannot do it in yourself. And back again, that's why Romans 4 takes the story of Abraham. And we talked about this yesterday when we looked at the topic of the two covenants. Abram first, God says to Abram, okay, Abram, you're going to have a son. Abram says, okay, I'll, I'll help with that, right? That is his works. Right? He, he tried to help God, and so he, you know, he, he had a child with, with Sarah's uh, maidservant, um, Hagar. But that was not God's plan. And so God comes again and says, no, you will have a child with Sarah. And then when they believed the promise, right, then the impossible could take place. Now, now think about this for a moment. In Romans chapter 4, um, when you look at the, the, the um, uh, illustration of Abraham, Abram is like such a classical example in that way of how many of us live our lives, but how we must rediscover, or discover maybe for the first time, what the gospel is really all about. The trusting in the promise of God. The acting on the word of God, right? Now, there's a lot more that we could say about that. uh, But I want to move a little bit on because Romans chapter 4, if we would only take Romans chapter 4, we would get a little bit of an unbalanced picture perhaps. Because, of course, there are works involved. And we find that as we continue in the book of Romans. But those works are not ours. That's the difference here. The works are Christ's work in us, right? I mean, James, he says, um, you know, um, faith without works is, remember? Death, death, right? So, um, 
What I believe has many times happened is that we have separated the two. And so we put faith over here and we put works over here. And then you get all these different debates going on. No, we are saved by works. No, we are saved by faith. No, we are saved by works. And, you know, it's, it's like separating something that cannot be separated. I like to put it this way. A real faith works. Right? I mean, a real faith will work in your life. A real faith. So, so it cannot be separated, and it should not be separated. Uh, just a little note on that. This is kind of a, a bonus here. <laughs> and that is that within Christianity, I believe that many times we get these confusions because of Greek influence. Um, Christianity started in Judea, and it was a Hebra It came kind of about the Hebrew faith of Judaism that Christianity merged, right, or came out of. Later on, um, Greek philosophy was mingled and mixed with Christian uh, truth and many of the um, doctrines that 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 that, uh, that certain denominations hold on to today are really uh, Greek um, philosophy has influenced that way of thinking. Now, in Greek philosophy, compartmentalization is something huge. Now, what is compartmentalization? It's basically separating things, right? So, so that you get. Um, I'll give you an illustration. Um, Anthropological dualism is a kind of a, a something that came from the Greeks, Hellenistic philosophers. Anthropology is the study of human being. Dualism is the idea that we're not one, but we're two. Uh, the Greeks believe that we're not one, we're two. Anthropological dualism, dualistic. Um, and they believe that the body was bad, but the spirit inside of the body was good. And that's why they believe that, that, that once a person dies, it's like the prison house is thrown open and the spirit is released and will continue to live forever and ever. Now, that kind of philosophy of the Greek uh, world entered into Christianity, and that's why in many denominations today, that's what is believed, right? It's this compartmentalization, uh, taking the spirit and the body and separating them. Well, in the Hebrew thinking or the biblical perspective, um, these things are unseparate, unseparable, right? They, they belong together, mind, spirit, uh, you know. Uh, body. This is one. This is oneness. And so also when it comes to theology and our understanding of the gospel, faith and works, we shouldn't disconnect them from each other. As if faith is over here, works is over here, they belong together. Right? Because true faith will step out in obedience to the command of God, in, 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 in faith to the promise. And, 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 and that will be established in the life of, of the believer. Um, if I have faith in Christ, then I'm also going to have faith in his words to follow him and to act upon his teachings, right? Uh, and, 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 and praying for the strength to live according to his way. Um, so so that's, that's important for us to, to understand. Now... What Romans chapter 4 really is dealing with is the first, the first step, right? Romans 1, 2, and 3, okay, we understand that we're depraved without Christ. Chapter 4, okay, I can do nothing, I've understood that, now I put my faith in Jesus. And I must come to that point, by the way. I must come to that, we must all come to that point. Uh, and that's the point that, a and that's why it's so classic that, that Paul uses the illustration of Abram, because Abram had to come to that point. Abram was like, okay, I, I know what I should do. I'll, I'll do it in my own strength. But then he had to come to the point, no, God, I must trust in your promise. Right? And that's, the, that's what the point that we all must come to. Now, Romans chapter 5 is um, an amazing chapter. Um, but I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time in it.
But Romans 5 is basically giving us a comparison picture, a picture of comparisons uh, between two individuals. And that is Adam, the first created human being, and Jesus Christ. And basically all the way um, from, basically from verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 21, what Paul does in Romans chapter 5, he says, okay, this is what came through Adam, this is what comes through Jesus Christ. This is what comes through Adam, this is what comes through Jesus Christ. Um, if you would kind of sum up Romans chapter 5, you could say it is the introduction of a new humanity or a new family. Um, it is like um, God, is, God is inviting us to enter into the family of Christ. So what comes through Adam? Well, condemnation. What comes through Adam? Well, eventually sin. We, you know, we've all followed in the footsteps of Adam. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, what comes through Adam? Well, death, you know, as a result of sin. Uh, but what comes through Jesus? Well, through Jesus comes life, everlasting life, comes justification, comes righteousness, comes eternal life. And he's making these comparisons between Adam and Christ. And I like to think of it like kind of like a, an, uh, an adoption. Uh, actually, when you come to Romans chapter 8, there's this beautiful verse where it talks about how we are adopted, you know, in um, uh, verse 15 of chapter 8. It says, For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You know, we are adopted into a new family. We were born into the family of Adam, but we can be born again when we give ourselves to Christ into the family of Christ, into the family of God. And uh, this is, this is the, the, the great appeal there in Romans chapter 5, as those two, um, uh, those two men are basically, and the result of what came out of them is, is portrayed there. Uh, we are all born into this world. We're born into Adam, but we don't need to stay there. We don't need to remain there. We can be born again. And that's, of course, the great invitation of the gospel, to be born again, to be born into the family of God and to then have the identity of Christ Jesus, and no longer the identity of Adam, right? Um, but I would like to go a little bit to chapter 6 and 7 um, as well, uh, and, we, and we don't have a lot of time left, but, but I want to particularly look at an illustration in chapter 7 that is very often misunderstood, and I hope to kind of shed some clarity on that one. Um, but before we go to chapter 7, just an overview here of chapter 6. Chapter 6... Uh, the theme of chapter 6, all the way through, is the theme of dying to self, which is a beautiful theme and a necessary theme um, within you know, the gospel and within our, our Christian experience. So we go basically from Romans 1, 2, and 3, understanding our condition without Christ. Romans chapter 4, that step of trusting Jesus... He must do it, not my own works. I can't get myself out of this condition of Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's impossible. You know, I can't. And, and many have tried that. And many religious people have tried it. But then we trust Christ. We say, Jesus, only you can do it. I put my faith in you, not my own works, but in you. And so I do what Abram did. I believe your promise. When we believe our promise, then Romans chapter 5, we enter into a new family, the family of Jesus. I no longer uh, bear the condemnation of being a son of Adam. I've sinned and come short, just like Adam sinned and come short, but now I put my faith in Christ and I'm in a new family. And then chapter 6, what's the result of being in that new family? It's, it's living a new life, and that life will involve a dying 
to self, okay? Because when Jesus comes into our heart, when Jesus comes into our life, there can only be one master. <laughs> there can only be one ruler in your life. And uh, if we are ruling ourselves, then there's not going to be place for Christ to guide and lead us as he wants to. Now, in Romans chapter 6, you basically have um, uh, two illustrations of how that dying to self you know, happens. And the first illustration that is given is baptism. And uh, maybe we just can read a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 6. And um, let's just begin in verse 1. Look at what it says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. Shall we, shall we now just, now we've put our faith in Jesus. Now we're in the family of God. Shall we now just continue to sin? I mean, is, is, is that the gospel? Which is really an important question here. What shall we say then? What shall we say to that that will put our faith in Jesus? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what is the answer in verse 2? Certainly not. So my friends, the gospel includes more than merely kind of the umbrella grace of Christ and that we just continue to live as we have always lived. That's why I love the theme of this conference. What does grace do? Transforms. It's the transforming grace of Christ, right? So when we experience the grace of God, are we just going to continue in sin? No, certainly not. That grace is going to lead us into an experience that is really portrayed here in chapter 6 and 7 and 8. And this is the experience of dying to self. And now it gives the illustration of baptism here. Look at verse, um, yeah, we'll continue in verse 2 here. Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his what? Yeah. Into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So, uh, I don't know if you've been, how, how many of you have been baptized? Baptized? Yeah, most of, most of you, okay. When you were baptized, what happened was, it, it's really a symbolic act, you know, of what is, of, of, of you're going under the water. It's like, going, it's like Jesus that was buried, right? And then you come up out of the water, just like Jesus, resurrected. And uh, this is so beautiful because what you're saying with baptism is, I want to belong to Christ, right? I want to give up my old life. I want to bury my old life. And I want to come up as a new person and I want Christ to live in me. So burial, resurrection, dying to self. The old man is crucified, resurrected. The new man, Christ Jesus, lives in me, right? Now, Baptism is only an outward act of a daily inward experience, right? Baptism, yeah, usually it happens one time in our life. Maybe some of you are rebaptized, or that can happen. Um, but it's not something we do every day. Yet the baptism, the picture that baptism gives is nevertheless an experience we should have daily. Uh, Paul said very clearly in one of his letters, he said, I 
die how often? Daily. He says, I die daily. What did he mean by that? He meant by that 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 self and pride that so so often rules us, that needed to be put away. That needed to be to be, to be crucified, right? So that in order for Jesus to live in him. Something must be removed, must be surrendered, must be laid aside in order for Christ to have full possession of us. And when you think about that, that uh, language there, um, you know, to crucify uh, self or to be, you know, and we think of, of course, of the death of Jesus, crucifixion, uh, and we think about, you know, how um, when the old man is crucified, it's put to death. Um, can, can, is that something we can do ourselves? So, okay, God... I realize the message is important that I die to self. Okay, I'm going to now try to die to self. Is that something we can do at our own strength? Well, I like to think of it this way. If the Bible says that we should be crucified, have you ever, have you ever seen a person that crucified themselves? Is that possible? Well, you can get one nail in there. Maybe, I don't know how you're going to, you're never going to be able to finish the job. You're never going to be able to finish the job. In other words, even the, the, the experience of dying to self is going to be after an experience that God is going to help us, need to help us with. Now, and this is where, you know, this can be painful, this can be uncomfortable, but it's a necessary thing in order for us to be born again. We must be able to lay aside those things in our lives that keep us from drawing close to Christ. We must ask God, God, what is it in my life that I... Please put to death those things that, that, that stand between you and me. Crucify the old man so that I can live with you, so that Jesus Christ can live in me. And so this illustration in Romans 6 is dealing with the baptism. Then the second, chap the second part of the chapter is really dealing with, um, um, it goes into, you know, either we're slaves of unrighteousness or slaves of righteousness. In other words, either we're under the control of our own passions and our own lusts and our own, you know, pride, proud, pr pride hearts, or we're under the control of another power, um, and that is, of course, Christ Jesus himself. Now, I want to go to an illustration in Romans 7, then maybe a truth about Romans 8, and then we will wrap up here. Um, we have about, yeah, five, ten minutes left, if you allow me to go five minutes over time. Um, Romans chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1 to 6 is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. Um, for a long time, it baffled me. I found it hard to understand what Paul was trying to say. Paul gets kind of sometimes very complicated in his you know, language. He was a theologian. He was a, he was a deep thinker. Um, but let's try to see if we, can, if we can understand this. Because once you start identifying the roles in this illustration of Romans 7, it's actually not that difficult. Uh, but you just need to be able to identify the roles, what Paul is talking about, and then it can really comes all together. And then it becomes a most, one of the most powerful illustrations um, of, of the gospel again. Now, I'm just going to read it through first. Romans chapter 7 and verse 1 to 6, okay? Um, it's, it's, he says this, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Okay, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Verse 2, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So, 
The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, what kind of law is Paul talking about? Well, when we get to verse 2, we see that it's a law concerning what? Marriage, right? Verse 2, because he says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. Now, this must then be the law of God, because obviously today, you know, just as in those days, you know, people sometimes just left their wives and, and, and the laws of the land did not, only, did not always say, hey, hey, get back together again. So obviously he's talking here about the law of God, right? He's saying the law of God, Ten Commandments, you know, the law of God, they say, right, that a man and a woman, once they get married, they are bound to each other for life, right? unless one of them dies, right? Now look at verse 3. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called a what? An adulteress, right? Verse 3. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she married another man. So, there are conditions where there is remarriage, and that, according to this illustration of Paul, is when, in this, in this particular illustration that he's using, the woman... Uh, the, the husband dies, right? So now the law that said that she cannot commit adultery, uh, that law is still there, but she's still free to marry again. But that same law that bound her to her first husband is now going to bind her to her second husband, right? You with me so far? Okay, now verse, um, verse 3. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she married another man. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. What Paul is doing, he's first giving us this illustration and then he's basically saying, okay, now this is how it works with the gospel, or this is how it works with the Christian experience. Uh, I'll just read verse 5 and 6 as well. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. Now, some people interpret this to mean that the law has been done away with. Okay, okay there you have it. We're no longer, uh, verse 6, we're no longer held, we should no longer serve the, um, or we should serve the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the latter. The oldness of the latter is the Ten Commandments and then we don't need that anymore because now we have the newness of the spirit. Great misunderstanding of the illustration that Paul is trying to give. Now, let's back up a little bit. What is Paul saying? Okay, he's giving the illustration of marriage, right? So he says there's a woman, there's a husband. They are bound together by the law of God. You know, what is united together cannot be separated. God unites them together. Now, that law is, uh, that law is, is binding them together, but if the husband dies, then the woman that was bound to her husband by the first law is now free from the law. But the free from the law does not mean that the law has no longer any effect. 
it just is in, in that particularly, particular um, uh, matter or moment, uh, she's now free to remarry. But if she, when she remarries the second husband, the same law that bound her to her first husband binds her to her second husband, right? So the law in this illustration has not changed. This is a great misunderstanding within Christianity. Many read that passage and say, ah, look, the law has been done away. No, no, no. The law is the same. Now, let's try to identify the components of this illustration, right? We have the woman. We have the law. We have the first husband, and we have the second husband, okay? Four. If we can understand what, who these four are, this illustration will come alive. Now, a woman in Bible prophecy, from Genesis to Revelation, what does the, what, what is many times, what does the woman many times uh, depict within prophecy and within scripture? Church. Exactly, the church, right? Or the movement of God. There are many passages we could, we could use, but we don't have time to go into that. But, but Paul, you know, even in the book of Corinthians, he says, when he's writing to the, to the Corinthian church, he says, you're like, a, you're like a chaste virgin to Christ, he says. You know, like the bride and the bridegroom. Christ is the bridegroom. The church or God's people are the bride. Like you have in Revelation 12, this prophetic picture of God's movement. How are they portrayed? Like a woman, right? So... The woman in this illustration, God's people. So in other words, that, that's you and me in the illustration, okay? That's all of us. Now, we are married to the first husband by the law of God, or the law binds us to the first husband. Um, <laughs> who's the first husband? And then who's the second husband? I think it's easier for us to, to, to detect in this passage who the second husband is, and then we'll, and then we'll find out who the first is. Uh, look again at the illustration, Romans 7. Look at verse 4, and I think this will, this will be pretty clear who the second husband is. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you by, might be married to another, right? Okay, so another, that's the second one. And then it describes the other, or the second one, last part of verse 4, to him, capital H, who was raised from the dead. Now, who was that? Christ. Christ. So who's the second husband? Christ. Christ. Okay. So the woman, we're the woman. We're bound to the first husband, but oh, what a miserable life. <laughs> a miserable life. And there's no way that we can be united to Christ because the law says that we cannot be united to the second husband because that would be committing adultery. So what Paul is saying is that naturally, in our human flesh, we are bound, bound, right, to the first husband. And uh, who do we want to be married to? Jesus, right? I mean, that's the whole picture of salvation, that the bride, the church, is united with the bridegroom, Christ Jesus. That's the culmination of Scripture. Revelation chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 talk about the, the final wedding of the Lamb. Now, that is only going to happen when the first husband dies. The first husband, according to this illustration, is self. It's, pride. it's the pride heart of man. And only when the pride heart of man dies, right, then, only then, can we be united to Christ Jesus. Go back and, and, and let's read it again here. Look at verse, verse 3. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she is married to another man. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, 
that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Look at this for verse 5. Verse 5, here it comes. For when we were, that's past tense, okay? So we want to be connected to Christ. But we were in the flesh, in the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So verse 5, very clearly, is, is, is depicting, right, the experience in the flesh. Now, this is kind of a very <laughs> Paul way of, 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 of depicting this, very theological, but very deep at the same time. He's saying, okay, he's using the illustration of marriage. He said, basically, you're married to yourself. You, I mean, you're occupied with yourself. I mean, that's who you live for. That's who you, that's who you want to serve. That's who you want to be with. That's who you want to... Everything is about ourself, 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 selfishness, pride. This is the very core of sin. But then Paul says there's only one way, only one way that you can be united to Jesus, which is your real husband, and that is that self must die. It's the core of the gospel. Self must die. That's why we must pray, Christ, crucify the flesh. Put to death that which is in me that, that, that wants the supremacy. And let the supremacy of Jesus arise within my heart. You know, this is the experience of Romans chapter 7 that it portrays here. And then when we get to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 is really describing the experience of what it is to be united with the second husband. What it is to be united with Jesus Christ when self has died. When we're one with Jesus. That's why Romans chapter 8, one of the most beautiful, beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. You know, it says there's no condemnation. Chapter 1, there is no more condemnation. I mean, all our life we've experienced condemnation. But now there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are married to Christ. Who do not walk according to the flesh any longer, but according to the Spirit. They're being set free. I just pray that you'll go back and study these, these, these things. Romans chapter 8, study it again, read it again. The experience that God wants to lead us into of oneness with your husband, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for being with us this afternoon. I want to thank you for the gospel. I want to thank you for setting us free from sin and for giving us your righteousness. Lord, I pray that we will enter into the experience of Romans chapter 8, that we will know you. Lord, that you may put to death in us all selfishness and pride, all sin that rises against your beautiful and holy character. Lord, please help us and lead us into a wonderful relationship with you that we may put you on, on, on display. Thank you so much for this beautiful message in the book of Romans. I just pray for everyone that has been attending this seminar. I just ask, Lord, that um, as they continue to journey with you, as they continue to study, uh, may you open their hearts and lead them. I ask this in your name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.